right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We're going to get to our interview with uh, Joseph Bramlett here shortly. He's been making some waves on the on the Corn Ferry Tour. He's had a very interesting career path, and we'll get into a lot of the ups and downs of injuries. And uh, it's it's a pretty wild story. And he has obviously some. Uh, he came out and spoke out about the racial issues lately in the United States. Uh, recently, he had some great comments, and I wanted to have him on to discuss some of those. And uh, we chat about that for a little while in the back half as well. This might seem a bit off topic, but uh, I bet you didn't know that the reigning Miss America receives an honorary post with the uh, Children's Miracle Network Hospitals during her tenure. You might ask why that might be relevant. Well, a former Miss America, Kira Dixon, who we met at the uh, Callaway launch event last year, is an ambassador for Jack and Barbara Nicholas's Play Yellow initiative. Uh, you may have heard us mention it last week. Play Yellow supports the 10 million kids treated at Children's Miracle Network hospitals each year. Uh, Callaway has limited edition Play Yellow Truvis ball, and $1 from every dozen of the Chrome Soft Play Yellow Truvis is sold uh, will be donated to the Play Yellow campaign. So when you buy the Play Yellow Truvis golf ball, you know how much I love the Truvises. Uh, you are a part of Callaway's donation to Children's Miracle Network Hospital. So for more on Play Yellow, visit callawaygolf.com and playyellow.org. Uh, oh, and, and Callaway would like to congratulate listener Matt Salter, who slid in our DMs to let us know he broke par for the first time with the help of his Maverick Sub-Zero driver, uh, which is also the same driver that our own Icarito plays. So congrats to Matt. And without any further delay, here is our interview with Joseph Bramlett. First thing, I just just take me straight to the Albatross, man. Corn Ferry <laughs> Tour is sometimes famous for, you know, some scoring errors, and it's always hard to get real hyped when you see something come through. But you actually did make an Albatross on the 72nd hole to tie the lead of a Corn Ferry event, if I remember that right. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. I, I wasn't even in a great spot off the tee. I was kind of stymied behind a tree, and I, I had a few yards to work with, and yeah, I'd had I'd had a good round coming, and I was I was kind of closing well. I'd made a few birdies down the stretch, and thought if I you know got it up there on the green in a good place, I had a chance for eagle or birdie. I could sneak in a top ten, and yeah, it was it was just an unbelievable moment. I hit a big high fade up over the trees. It kind of came down on the green, and in the air, I was like, that actually looks pretty good. And after that, it was pretty much just blind luck, and the ball landed eight feet from the hole. It took a couple hops, rolled in, and it was just completely surreal. I mean, it was, there was nobody around. There was no photographers, no fans. It was just, it was like a really blank, weird moment of like, wow, did that actually just happen? And <laughs> my playing partners like threw their arms up in the air. And uh, yeah, I looked at my caddy and I was just like, dude, nobody is going to believe this. Like everyone, I'm going to have 50 <laughs> texts on my phone that like they messed up my score. Like, what did I actually shoot? And um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. Usually it's rounds with your buddies when you do something that you'd say, Oh, nobody's going to believe this, but 72nd hole of a tournament, you, you would think that you have, uh, you know, enough witnesses or somebody to be around to see that, but so you could see it go in from where you were standing. Yeah, I could, I could see it go in. I mean, we were 235 yards out. So you're always in the back of your mind. You're like, did that actually go in or is that long? Right. And I'm just not seeing it right. But 
it definitely looked like it went in and my playing partners had already started walking up once my ball was in the air and they both confirmed they're like no that's in the hole and i was uh yeah i was beside i mean it's a weird moment because like we're social distancing i like would give my caddy a big hug but like we're not really supposed to touch and i mean there's just there's nobody around it was it was very surreal and odd but it was also incredible i mean walk off double eagle and uh my caddy pulled out his phone and sure enough we were tied for the lead i was like no way (laughs) (laughs) so you played uh you finished t2 and t3 in these first two corn ferry events and several pga tour guys dropped down to play these corn ferry events what was the rationale there i mean i'm guessing it's kind of obvious with having months off with nothing to play and you weren't able to get into those first few fields of that event but was it a given for you that you were going to go down and play those uh events here in jacksonville so Yes and no. I definitely was going to compete those two weeks because I had been off for about three months at that point. So I was actually fourth alternate for Colonial. Uh, And so I I went to Texas Monday and Tuesday and kind of waited around to see if everyone passed their tests. And uh, sure enough, everyone that was there passed and was going to play. So then we flew Tuesday night over to uh, Sawgrass and decided to play the Corn Ferry that week. And then uh, I was definitely going to play the next week as well. I, I mean, Corn Ferry Tour has great competition and it was the perfect place for me to kind of get my feet wet and get back into those competitive uh, situations and kind of prepare for the rest of the summer. Well, and then you came back and you played Travelers and Rocket Mortgage. Uh, you missed the cut this last week at Rocket Mortgage. And I do have, I promise I've got a ton of questions for you about your career, but I need to know from a fellow professional, what do you make of what Bryson is doing right now? You're coming straight off this golf course. You saw what he did to it. Can you please help us try to understand this? I mean, he's the guy's, I mean, Phil started it, but he's, he's dropping bombs. I mean, he's making, he's making all of us, you know, reconsider what we're doing. I mean, it's amazing to me how he's been able to blend the power of long drive with accuracy. Right. I, I've thought for several years that as many athletes are on the PGA Tour, I really don't think we have reached our potential in terms of the speed that we can create. And I definitely think that you're going to see a trend of guys starting to swing it faster like what Bryson's doing. But for him to do it this quickly and to hit it as straight as he's hitting it is is pretty good man like it's it definitely it, it makes me think i can step it up a little bit because it's hmm. it's golf looks really easy when you're hitting short irons in a par five <laughs> well it's it's such a cautionary tale though for you know any amateur coming out into the pro ranks you know not to get caught up chasing distance and it seems like and i just threw this out there i was like is this the most successful chasing of distance ever because i mean how many ho- horror stories i'm yeah. sure you have you know oh, being completely. very close right and and so that well yeah and there's there's so many factors that follow that i mean chasing distance sounds great but then what you have to be very careful of is one physical injury and i'm sure bryson's on top of all those things but just how much is your body able to take the stress that he's starting to put on it and then further down that line i mean the guy's wedge game has been fantastic the last three weeks and to be able to blend that type of physical exertion and power on a driver and then still be able to harness it back and control his club head speed. I mean, last week he stuffed that wedge on 18 to three feet like it was nothing. And I mean, that's that's a very challenging thing to do from an athletic standpoint, to be able to put that much force in on a tee shot 
and then completely adjust on a 90 to 100 yard wedge shot and have that kind of touch and that kind of feel. So I think it'll be really interesting to see long term how he's able to manage it. And I mean, Bryson seems like a really bright guy and he seems like he takes care of all of the variables. But this five week stretch he's been on is pretty darn impressive. People are probably sick of us talking about it, but I, pr- I, I it is a very. How can you not? En- I mean, it's enormous. Yeah, it's an enormous story in golf. I, I, I've said this. Like, I don't think there's anyone else that could have done this. That could go get in the lab and then six months later be hitting the ball. You know, however many percent further he's hitting it and hitting it. Like you, to your exact point, people are underrating how straight he's hitting it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm asking anyone and everyone about it because I thought Rory's comments about it after playing with him. I mean, he's flat out said it. You know, I told Harry, holy shit, that was unbelievable. Like, if, <laughs> yeah. you are, if you are making the number one player in the world um, literally amazed, then you're doing something that is maybe never really fully been done in golf before. But Well, yeah, uh, if you look at the times that this has happened, I mean, you got John Daly when he came out in the early 90s and then Tiger at Augusta 97, and everybody was just blown away about what they were able to do with their drivers. And Bryson has gone from definitely not one of the longest hitters out here to six months later like you said everybody's like holy shit what what are you doing this is incredible (laughs) well it's one thing to come out and be a prodigy from the start and hitting it far but to transform yourself into one is one that's the most amazing part it's not even the fact i'm not amazed at how far he hits it i'm amazed that he's able to transform it at this level and and have this immediate success but so take us back for you know for people that maybe are not as familiar with you. Let's start with your uh, maybe your amateur career in golf. We can kind of work your way into your pro career. But you're you're 32 now, and I know we've got a yeah. lot to cover from an injury standpoint in the mid uh, you know mid 2010s and whatnot. But go backwards. You play, you played at Stanford, and kind of take us to uh, some of your amateur uh, amateur highlights and your transition to pro golf. Yeah, so I started at Stanford uh, a freshman in 2006, and. Um, yeah, I grew up in Northern California, so Stanford was a dream school for me. Played a lot of amateur golf in Northern California, which I loved growing up. I thought that really shaped me as a golfer. I didn't play a whole lot of junior tournaments, but my parents got me into playing Northern California Golf Association events really young, and I got to play with guys that were a lot older, a lot of gritty veterans, and so I, I learned a lot from them. And then I went to Stanford, and I was able to uh, be a part of our national championship winning team my very first year. And so, I mean, I rolled right into college and thought we were going to just win nationals every year and it was going to be an easy ride. (laughs) Yeah. So that was a great highlight. And then I ended up getting hurt my sophomore year. So I hurt my right wrist. We were doing some wind sprints. Uh, It was a rainy day and we were running outside, running back inside. And I just, I clumsily slipped and fell on my wrist and I had a bone bruise. It cost me six months. Uh, Unfortunately, it was, you know, at the end of January, so it cost me the rest of my sophomore year. My junior year in school, I actually unfortunately hurt that same wrist. I got uh, I got flipped off my bicycle trying to go turn in a, one of my finals uh, around Thanksgiving, and that you're not going to believe this. I asked, I reached out to Coach Ray just for oh you know, some, what some nuggets <laughs> to ask you, and oh he God. literally said, "Only nugget I have is his clumsy mess. He falls off bikes, slips on floors, <laughs> etc." That is the only note he gave me. Hey, man. I mean, we are who we are, right? Like, I, just, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm a decent athlete, but I still don't know how big my feet are, and I'm tripping over things 24-7, and I'm never riding a bicycle again. Um, it's, really? just, it's just who I am. But, yeah, I got flipped off my bike, and it cost me 13 months, so that was pretty oh. tough. 
Yeah, it, it was emotionally a tough period in college because I came in, I was a second team All-American my freshman year. We won a national championship um, my sophomore year. I missed the second half and I watched my team on the internet lose by a shot. And so that just drove me nuts. And then I started coming back and then I hurt myself again. So then fast forward to my senior year, I had a nice fall uh, or a nice spring to my senior year. I started playing again January of that year and, you know, it was a little up and down, but I closed out my career. We lost in the first round of match play at nationals and qualified for the U.S. Open a couple of days later, which was amazing. So I was able to graduate. I was able to play the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, which was a thrill of a lifetime to do that as an amateur. Yeah, I continued playing amateur tournaments that summer. I uh, was able to win the Northeast Am, which was a huge thrill for me. Uh, it was my first, you know, big amateur win. And then, yeah, I lost in the, I think, the round of 16, maybe, at Chambers Bay in the USAM that summer. And then I turned professional shortly after. Well, I was going to say, do you only try to qualify for the U.S. Open when it's at Pebble? Yeah, so that's actually like one of my things is that I'm really not interested when it's other years. I just play it. <laughs> no, I, it's weird how it's how it's turned out. I've played two U.S. Opens. They were both right in my backyard at Pebble Beach. I certainly wish I had played a lot more by now, but the two I played were just unbelievable experiences. I mean, Pebble Beach is my favorite place in the whole world. So the way that's worked out has been really, really cool. You know, I was uh, getting ready, you know, doing some prep for this interview. I went back and found some just YouTube, looking for YouTube highlights, and they have your putt that you made on the, whatever, the sixth round. I don't know how many holes that is. I wanted to say 72nd hole, but the sixth round of school in 2010. <laughs> you got it. To clinch and lock up your card. I was like, man, I kind of miss qualifying school. I miss seeing guys. I know the Corn yeah. Ferry Finals have, have something similar, but qualifying school was, there was uh, there was some pressure on that final putt to, to uh, earn your card. Yeah, there absolutely was. I mean, that was, uh, to me at the time, uh, straight out of college, that was a moment of a lifetime for me. I, I was, I viewed my time at Stanford as a time to prepare for professional golf and Q school post Stanford was kind of that first opportunity for me. And yeah, I mean, that day at, uh, Orange County National was just one of the, one of the coolest days of my life. I mean, it was my first chance to ever get a PGA Tour card, and I had about a six-footer on my last hole. I had been on quite a run going into that. I made five birdies in a row on my back nine, and I was, like, really making a push. And to be able to seal that was just a huge, just emotional thrill for me. That was really, really cool. What was it like uh, coming out on the, on the PGA Tour in 2011? I mean, what was were you overwhelmed by the whole by everything that was going on there? Did you feel very ready for it, or what were some of those lessons you learned in that first year? Yeah, at the time, I certainly thought I was ready for it. Uh, looking back, I think I was definitely not prepared. Kind of like you said, I, I also really miss, you know, that Q school aspect of being able to go from nowhere straight to the PGA Tour at the end of the year. However, being one of those cases, I think I would have benefited greatly from a year on the Corn Ferry Tour. Um, right. In my first year on the PGA Tour was essentially my first year playing professional golf. So, I mean, I was still learning how to book flights, like what a hotel reservation looks like, how to get a rental car, like just all these very like tedious little things that you don't think about. Uh, and then on top of that, when you're playing on the PGA Tour, I mean, you're on the road six, seven, eight weeks in a row quite often. And in college, we were on the road for like three days and then we come home for two weeks. And so I'd play a tournament then I'd have a lot of time to come home and practice and then get ready for the next tournament. The schedule and the travel and all of the outside of golf things were a really big surprise and adjustment for me. And so that definitely 
showed in my play and it showed in kind of my development. But yeah, once once I kind of got that figured out, I think I got my footing under me and I, I started to, to have a little more success. At age 32 now, what's something that if you were if you're going back 10 years to that time period, what's something what's the first thing you would tell like 22, 23 year old you in that scenario? Man, it's just patience. And it's so hard because everybody tells you when you're that age, but you just don't want to hear it. I mean, I at 22, 23, I you you just don't have patience. I mean, you're you want it all right now, right then. And I, you know, put a lot of pressure on myself and I really wanted to have that success right away. And when I wasn't having that success early in my rookie year, you just you get frustrated and and the, the patience just dwindles really quickly so I think whatever I told myself would have told myself at 22 I might not have listened to to be honest but if I could actually put my 32 year old brain in that body and implement that the patience and understanding of where I'm at in my career I think uh, that would have been pretty cool well before we move on too fast from Stanford one of our guys wanted me to ask you ask about is it the 12th hole what what which is the yeah. hole at Stanford that has the tree in the middle of the fairway absolutely yeah it's number 12 it's I mean it used to have two of them they're huge yeah are you in support of trees in the middle of the fairway can you take us to that hole for people that maybe haven't seen it and what do you think of it yeah so the 12th hole at Stanford I get asked about this constantly and it's probably about a 460 yard par four and there's just these massive oak trees right in the middle of the fairway. And the fairway is extremely wide, so there's a little bit of room on the left and a little bit of room on the right to play around them. Am I in support of trees in the middle of the fairway? No, except for the one that's on 12 at Stanford because I grew up playing that golf course and it just seems normal to me and it just seems like a part of the golf course and I always play that hole pretty well. So I think that's probably the one instance. Um, I played a little bit in Asia when we were in college and they had a lot of holes like that and I was probably not in support of it at the time because it was so new to me and I didn't know what to do with them. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a wild hole. I think about that hole, and I think about that tee shot off number one a lot. That's that's one of the wilder. I mean, it's not over a road; it's over like a a four way intersection. <laughs> there, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a major intersection in the university, and there's a huge barn all along the left hand side, and you're way up there in the air, and you're just trying not to kill anybody or anything. Is there are there horror stories? I mean, I'm I'm guessing it's not too much from the guys that uh, played on the on the team, but for anyone else that goes and plays out there about them hitting balls down onto the road right below it oh yeah if you go in the pro shop and talk to some of those guys that work in the shop they've dealt with a lot of <laughs> a lot of tough afternoons with guys who have topped balls off the off the tee and got a car on the road or i mean if guys spray it way off to the right you can end up hitting the driving range which doesn't even seem anywhere near in play but there have definitely been some some bad afternoons out there Quick break here. You guys know what I'm about to say, that every golfer needs a rangefinder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. Our rangefinder is Precision Pro. Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. All of us use them. C-suite to the Strat Boys. Uh, it is a low-budget option, but yes, Tron and I, uh, even though the fact that we are frequently playing the role of C-suite, we of course are using our Precision Pro rangefinders. The NX7 Pro Slope is on sale for $219, and our listeners can receive an extra $20 off by using promo code No Laying Up. By our math, that means you add an award-winning slope rangefinder to your golf bag this summer for $199. So 
Uh, plus, they're the only rangefinder that offers free battery replacement services. So you're signing up for a lifetime service. So go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro. Let's get back to Joseph Bramlett. So maybe this has to do with clumsiness, but I, I don't know the, the, I guess, the source of your, your next series of injuries that happened, I believe, in 2013, which is a back injury. What, what specifically did you injure with your back? How did you injure it? And uh, how did you, when did you know you had an issue? Thankfully, this one's a little less embarrassing, at least. Um, yeah, my, my lower back injury, um, I, I tore a disc in my low back, um, right about my L4, L5, and I just... Basically, I hadn't really ever had back pain growing up, and I was warming up for a tournament in Salt Lake City, July 1st, 2013. It was actually on a Wednesday, and I did a little chipping. I went to the range to go start my practice session, and I set up to like a little 40-yard pitch shot, and I tried to take the club back, and my body just got stuck, and I just felt like this searing really hot pain all over my body and I couldn't move. It turned out that I had torn a disc in my low back, was forced to withdraw from the event and uh, it kind of led me down a very long rehab process of rehabbing my body and, and my my swing and figuring out what the, the problem was and how to fix it. And yeah, it was it was a tough period. Well, yeah, you say that and it's, it's easy to kind of glance over it as a tough period but how long of a period are we talking here because just you know i i it, i go pull up your your career page and i see this big gap of years in it and you got to kind of dig to figure out what if that was just i, I couldn't I, at first i was like did he lose status and then i read about the injury and man that's that's a long period of time not only to not be playing competitively but just to like go through life with that much back pain is not very fun no it was it was really hard uh to be honest i in summation i, I missed four and a half years uh, of competitive <laughs> golf jeez yeah and it, it was tough um like you said i had my rookie year in 2011 on the pga tour finished like 195th on the money list, had a very poor year. Uh, then I went to the Corn Fair year the next year, and I was inside the top 25 the whole season. And I came up a shot short the very last event. I <laughs> I got passed by like $3,000 and uh, went from 24th entering the event to 27th maybe at the end of the event. So I just missed on getting my PGA Tour card back. I worked really hard that Next off season, looking forward to 2013 is a year I do really well on the Corn Ferry. And um, in the middle of the year, my back went out. And yeah, the first probably six to eight weeks, I was just laying on the floor at home. I wasn't able to do much of anything. I, I couldn't live a normal life. I was struggling just to even stand up to go brush my teeth or walk to the kitchen to get food. Um, you know, I had to have people taking care of me and, and just trying to get around was was not possible. So um, I saw a lot of different doctors and spine surgeons. Um, I mean, actually, I saw 15 different spine surgeons. And oh my God, 15? Yeah. I well, I I just could not figure out why. So I mean, I saw 15 spine surgeons over the course of about a year and a half. And every time I would start to play off together, as my body would start to heal a little bit, literally within five to 10 shots of getting back to the driving range, I was on my butt again, laying on the ground. And my back would start to heal a little bit away from the golf course. And so then I would go try to test it again and it would just go really, really poorly. So I saw 15 different spine surgeons. The first 14 said I was not a candidate for a microdisectomy. The only surgery they could do for me would be to install some metal rods into my low back 
but that would eliminate all range of motion and in turn end my golf career. And so uh, that wasn't an option. That was not what I wanted to do at that age. And uh, the 15th guy said he'd, <laughs> he said he'd open me up and take a look. And I really started considering that for a little while more out of desperation than intelligence. And thankfully, my family and my girlfriend kind of talked me out of it and told me that you don't need to be doing exploratory back surgeries right now. You kind of need to stay the course and you need to keep working through this. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was able to find my current physical therapist and my current golf instructor. And we were able to figure out a program to kind of reconstruct how I move my body and then how I move my body in my golf swing. And... Uh, we changed the clubs I play. We went to longer shafts. Uh, we changed the way I swung and cleaned up a lot of my footwork and hip work. And, you know, thankfully, we were able to get to the end of it. Four and a half years was a, was a really long period, and uh, I learned a lot of patience through that. But um, thankfully, we've gotten here. Wow. Yeah, that's I was getting ready to ask about what you actually did to a golf swing, but just the way you laid out there is... I hadn't even thought of all the things you'd have to consider. But do you do feel, I mean, do you currently battle anything with the back still? I mean, from how serious that sounded and sounds, I, can ima I can't imagine that that ever truly 100% goes away. You're right. So it doesn't ever completely go away. I'm able to play golf pain-free right now, which is amazing. Uh, but I have to constantly monitor myself because I've got 25 to 28 years worth of bad habits built in that... I just always want to start to gravitate towards. I mean, my back injury essentially came from swinging the club poorly and putting a lot of stress on my low back. I had bad footwork. I didn't use my hips well, and I had a lot of side bend as I got to impact. So I just have to constantly monitor myself from falling into those habits, and I have to stay really diligent about my... Uh, physical therapy routine. So I got a lot of warm-up stuff I do every morning, a lot of cool-down stuff I do every night. But as long as I stay on top of everything, I'm able to play and play pain-free, which, I mean, is incredible and something I'll never take for granted again. Were you, I mean, were you close to giving up on golf at any time period during, uh, during this injury period? No. I would say that I had moments where I wondered if I was ever going to figure it out. And I had moments that I mean, four and a half years is a long time. And throughout that period, there's, there was a lot of, of times where I would start to make progress and then I would hit a wall and we'd start to go backwards again. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty relentless through those periods for a while. But once I kind of got to like year three and I was running into some issues, I definitely started to question if it was ever actually going to, to work out. But for whatever reason, I don't know what it is, but uh, since kindergarten, I've just known that I want to be a professional golfer on the PGA Tour. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. And um, I definitely was not considering anything else. Thankfully, with uh, some great guidance from you know a great therapist and a great coach, I was able to kind of get the ship righted and was able to resume my career. But yeah, it was, it was a tough journey. So for someone with, like you with your current status, what is this shakeup to the PGA Tour season? What's it been like for you? I mean, no matter 
what the tour did with how they addressed status and fields and everything when they got back, somebody was going to get on the short end of the stick. And I think, I think your class of guys, like Corn Ferry graduates, is probably and where you are on the priority list probably has been hit the hardest. Yet no one's losing status this year, so there is some kind of some cushion to fall back on. But how do you view overall how this has shaken out for you personally? Yeah, for me personally, I mean. I'm just thrilled to be back playing golf this summer. Uh, when when the COVID stuff kind of kicked off for, for our country in March, I didn't expect us to be back this fast. So I'm really just thankful we're back playing again. From my status and, and stuff like that, it's been tough. And I, I didn't know if I was going to get into any tournaments this summer, I, you know, because if the big guys want to play, you know, I'm lower on the priority list. So like you said, I was, I was playing pretty well going into this. And I think I had kind of moved up to about 100 on the FedEx. And so I had a chance to get into Colonial based on my number, and that didn't quite shake out. And it's it's a great kind of safety net that at least we will all still maintain status next year should we not get a lot of opportunity to play this summer. But, you know, there's still a lot of incentives on tour to finishing top 125 and in terms of what my priority would be next year if I, if I could finish top 125. So um, that would still be a really big barrier to get to and, and help you know the next progression of my career because playing in the current corn ferry category and, and playing in this category next year is is tough because you can't plan out your schedule uh right. you're really just you're subject to playing whenever you know your number can get in so you kind of always have to constantly stay ready you really can't plan out any breaks you can't try to really peak for anything you just have to always stay sharp so it's a great safety net that the tour has provided us uh, because I think a lot of guys would have lost their card just because they didn't have tournaments to play this summer, but there's still a lot of incentive to play well and, and to continue moving up. Yeah, I guess, you know, if I were to rephrase what I said, I think the the corn the top corn fairy guys probably got it the worst and that they don't have a chance to graduate to the PGA Tour this past year because guys, at least the guys in your category are getting a whole another year's worth of starts uh, next year, which... Um, you know, it, what you earned. So I, I think it, it, it probably had to fall out this way. I don't fault the tour at all. And like I said, it was, it was somebody was going to get the short end of the stick, but, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's, they've addressed it. Cause I, as soon as we saw this, we we're like, man, those guys that are counting on a lot of these starts this summer are not going to get them. Cause now the JTs are playing all of these events and, and, uh, and whatnot. So yeah, it's interesting. It's going to be a, a, a next year's corn fairy finals and next year's corn fairy season. I guess this whole wraparound season is going to be wild because it is going to get, uh, somehow even more competitive for those graduating spots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're going to see a whole lot of nerves and a lot of other things kicking in because guys are going to, they're, they'll be waiting for it for a long time, which is, is, you know, part of this tough situation. Well, I was ready to address this next line of questioning by saying it's, you know, it's an awkward topic to discuss. It's awkward scenario for me, but I wanted to, I kind of stopped myself when I was preparing that and saying, I thought, man, I'm not sure if awkward's the right word, because if I feel that, how much someone like you must be feeling in this scenario and the current racial tensions that have been going on. Uh, and you spoke so wonderfully about those issues uh, in your first event back. And I, I do want to dig into those. For those that aren't familiar, you are one of the few uh, black golfers out there on the professional tour. What has the last month, month and a half been like for you uh, as, as a black golfer on the PGA Tour? Yeah, the last, the last month and a half, I think, just being a you know a black man in, in America has been an emotional time. There's been a lot going on. You know, obviously the George Floyd incident kicked off a lot of uh, a lot of things and a lot of a lot of protests, a lot of 
of backlash and a lot of people speaking up in this country. And um, I think being, you know, one of the few black golfers on the PGA Tour right now, it's given us a little bit of a platform and it's given us a line of questioning that isn't always easy to talk about, but I think is very necessary to talk about. And I think that I'm in a unique place right now where I have the ability to have conversations with people like you about what's going on and, and, and how we can we can have discussions to try to create change in my category that's hopefully in golf and I hope to continue to grow the game as much as we can is it is it something that you can separate out how you know you you went you went to it there and I kind of wanted to start with what it's been like to be you know one of the few professional black golfers because the the golf world has kind of turned to you to speak on this and I separately wanted to discuss, to discuss just what it's been like to be black as you go through this this time of uh, it's a lot I imagine there's a lot of emotion in it is the the point I'm meaning but is is do you feel pressure in any way that like the golf world puts pressure on you to speak in some ways on behalf of of the black community have you felt that at all to be honest, I've felt opportunity. I, I really have not felt pressure. I've, I feel like the PGA Tour has done an amazing job just in the last month and a half of trying to increase the conversation, to increase attention to the social justice issues that are going on, and to find ways to grow the game and to grow people's minds uh, about these topics. And so I, I don't feel pressure. I mean, these are things I've grown up with and I've learned about a lot growing up. And now I feel like people want to talk and discuss them. And so I feel like this is a great time and a great opportunity uh, to have that dialogue and to try to expand people's minds and, and try to get people to understand what are some of the struggles that black people go through currently today and and some of the things that might limit them in the game of golf how have you i guess have you personally experienced racism uh in in golf in your past or in in recent few in recent times have you have you uh, experienced it and if so how so yeah i would say my experiences with racism especially in golf have been more implicit than explicit i'm mixed and so I'm, I'm black and I'm white and, you know, my, my skin color is a little bit is much lighter than a lot of guys. And so I think in some ways I have been able to pass, but I have definitely had some some instances growing up with some junior golf organizations and some some amateur things that have happened. But that being said, when it comes to where I'm at right now, I've had the full support of the PGA Tour. I have not had any of the instances that the Charlie Siffords have gone through, that the Jim Dents have gone through, that, you know, even Tiger has gone through. Thankfully, I've had a lot of help from those guys and kind of progressing the sport already. But I think that even though I haven't had a lot of explicit encounters with racism on the golf course, uh, I think that we can still, I still have a, an opportunity to help move this forward. One thing that stuck out to me in watching some of those Q School clips from, you know, a decade ago was, you know, they pointed out on the broadcast that you were, I believe, the first black player to graduate through Q School uh, back when that was the direct path to the PGA Tour. And it stuck out to me how much how you perked up when it when you were asked about that and got a chance to speak on that as if you took a lot of a lot of pride from that. Can you kind of take us to to kind of how you felt in, in regards to that, how you felt as, as being the first black player to graduate through Q School in 25 years? Yeah, it was a really big honor. Um, ironically, earlier that week, I had 
read a Golf Week magazine, and on the cover of it was Adrian Stills, who 25 years before was had been the last uh, black player to get through Q School, and so it was it was just an interesting time, kind of how how that played out, and and then I had the opportunity to thankfully break that streak, but at the time Tiger was the only African American on the PGA Tour, and so. Um, I took a lot of pride and it was, it was a great honor to start increasing that number again. And um, I thought that it had been far too long since another black guy had made it to the PGA Tour. And it was, it was a very cool moment for myself and for my family just to help start pushing that trend back again. And on that note, are you surprised that there, one, that there hadn't been any more black golfers since 1985 and even since then that there aren't more than, than there currently are on the PGA Tour? Does that surprise you at all? I would not say it surprises me, um, but I, I also think that you're starting to see a change on the PGA Tour. Um, I mean, in 2010, it was just Tiger, and then I was able to get my card in 2011. Um, but since then, um, Harold Varner has gotten his card and he's done very, very well for himself. Cam Champ has gotten his card. He's done very, very well for himself. Tony Finau, another man of color, has done really well for himself on the PGA Tour and represented the U.S. in several team events. And so I think you're starting to see the dynamic of the PGA Tour start to change a little bit, uh, which is a great thing. I mean, historically, golf is a, is a pretty white game, to be uh, straightforward with you. Historically, there have not been a lot of African-Americans that have had a lot of success in the game of golf. And you haven't seen a lot of people of color, you know, dominate the game of golf. So I think that now you are starting to see a shift and, and a, a strong trend uh, towards changing that. And I don't know if, if golf is ever going to be is ever going to look like football or basketball. I don't know. But I think that given the presence that we have right now on the PGA Tour and the opportunity that we have, I think we can start to inspire a lot of kids who might not have been, who might not have felt as welcome at the golf course and might not have felt as drawn to play golf. Uh, and we might be able to start changing that. And one of the things I, I feel like I've definitely learned in the last few months is that, you know, just, just not being racist is not okay. That it shouldn't just be minorities that are actively fighting racism and i you know the conversation when it would come up i would just kind of look and say like well i'm not racist like what you know th this isn't about me and i think that is not it, there's a lot that has come from the last month month and a half and i i think that for a lot of people that realization has happened and we're working on a few things internally here to kind of put our efforts where our mouth is and we're not ready to detail just exactly what those are are yet but in your mind like for two part question for someone like me what can i do what can we do as a group uh, you know to help this movement forward and what can people listening to this you know do to help help encourage more black people and african americans in the game of golf yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think what you guys can do and are doing is great because I think you have a, a great voice in golf. And I think that simply raising the conversation is a great avenue um, for you guys to to help increase the word, increase the conversation and increase people's awareness about it. Um, what can the average person do? I think a lot of it comes with golf comes down to access and availability. And I think a lot of young kids of color simply don't have the access to learn golf, to play golf, 
most people's first interactions with golf is through their family and either their grandpa takes them out to their country club or or their dad takes them to play or their mom but like it's, it's more of a familial thing and a lot of families of color don't have a history with the game of golf and some of that has to do with access some of that has to do with just history and being welcome at the golf course and so i think that if people can channel their efforts towards trying to increase opportunity for for people to be introduced to golf uh people that historically would not have been introduced to golf i think that's a really big step i mean i think the first tee's done it done a great job to a certain extent i think there's a lot of organizations that are trying to bring golf to more inner city youth and i think that I think that is where the change starts. And then I think 15, 20 years from now is when you really start to see the effect of that. Exactly. Well, I, I don't know if this is a transition question or not. And I, I want, but I do know that, and I've seen some stuff that you have a relationship uh, and have had a relationship with Tiger Woods for a long period of time. What was, what was the origin of that? And kind of what is that a, ma- a relationship you still maintain to this day? Yeah. So I got to know Tiger when I was at Stanford. Um, I mean, the, the first time I met Tiger, I was 15 years old. I played on his foundation team uh, that played at junior world every year at Torrey Pines. So uh, I don't know if he remembers, but that was the first time I met him. Uh, was when I was 15. And then it, when I got to Stanford, uh, our coach Conrad was teammates with Tiger. And so we'd play a college event at Isleworth every year. Uh, Tiger would come out and watch us in the practice rounds. He'd have us over for dinner one night. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, it was like the coolest experience because this guy that was all of our hero and at the top of the world was sitting there on his couch, like having dinner with us and just like answering questions and talking like we were hanging out. So Tiger was just amazing to us when we were in school at Stanford. And um, thankfully, we've we've kind of continued that relationship since. I played a couple practice rounds with him at the U.S. Open in 2010. Um, I've certainly stayed in a little bit of contact with him uh, out on tour. I wouldn't say that, you know, we're super close and we talk often. That, that definitely wouldn't be true. But, um, you know, when I see him, it's always, you know, give him a hug. Hello, how you doing? Um, he was a big supporter of me through my back injury, helped me get back. And I was able to receive an exemption this year, the Charlie Sifford exemption into uh, his tournament down at Riviera. So uh, I've had a great relationship with Tiger. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, seeing a lot more of him down the road. Do you remember what you what you would have asked him that night at dinner or what anybody asked him? Does anything Dude, stick we out asked him. Uh, poor guy. <laughs> we we asked him everything. And it was probably the last stuff he wanted to talk about. It was all golf. We were like, all right, Tiger, you know, when you were in the Canadian Open in the right bunker, were you aiming at that flag? And then we were like, okay, well, let's say you're playing a tournament. Like, what's your strategy? Like, are you trying to hit it in the fairway every time? Are you trying to hit it as far off the tee as you can? I mean, we just hammered him for hours. I think the the biggest thing I walked away from was just how confident he was in his putting because he told us, he said, if I have 30 feet or closer for 72 straight holes for birdie, I'm going to shoot six under every day. I'm going to shoot 24 under every tournament and I'm going to win by 10 every week. And I was like, wow, like 30 feet and closer, you're going to make six of them around? Like, (laughs) I, that that blew my mind. So I learned a lot, you know, just kind of hanging out with him. But the poor guy, we just we just hammered him on golf nerd questions for three hours. In a private setting like that, does he does he speak differently than he does when addressing the media? Like, did it feel more laid back in that regard? Absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I think it was more laid back for him. Uh, the rest of us were crazy nervous. I mean, we're like. <laughs> 
this is Tiger Woods. Like this guy, we have watched everything he's done like for years. And like, if I say anything that makes me sound like an idiot, like he's never going to talk to me again. This is going to be the worst moment of my life. Like you're just, you're trying to be cool, but you're like trying to also learn from him. And it like, so our team was just extremely tense. And thankfully we had a couple couple juniors and seniors on the team that like were a little more well-spoken and could handle a conversation but as a freshman like I wasn't asking hardly any questions yeah that's a, that's cool it's it's amazing how vividly you uh that you remember that remember that experience but I always got the sense from Tiger that he did really enjoy talking about the minutiae of uh, nerdy golf details yeah, I think he definitely does. Uh, and I mean, he sat there and entertained us for, I mean, we probably had dinner for three hours. So uh, we definitely just kind of kept talking and talking about it. Um, but walking out of there, we were all were like, geez, man, like he probably just wanted to hang out and like get to know us as people and like, you know, probably get a break from golf. And here we are just grilling them like while we're trying to eat our dinner. And like he's... <laughs> He's like golf 24 seven. And then we come in and we're just grilling him about like what he's thinking, what he's doing. And, um, yeah, we, we might've been a little hard on ourselves afterwards, but, um, yeah, he definitely, he was great to talk to and he was incredibly open. That's what it, what really surprised me was how we could just really have an open conversation with him and he wasn't guarded. Uh, and I think with the media that that can be a hard thing to do. Um, but I think having Conrad there and a bunch of college kids and he's a huge supporter of Stanford. He, uh, yeah, he really made us feel comfortable. Uh, completely different topic here. I, I'm just, I want to know what you, I never know how to ask this, but I always ask guys, you know, where, who have you learned from the most when you've been out on tour? And I don't necessarily mean somebody that's given you lessons or, you know, come up and give you tips or giving you feedback on anything. I've learned a lot in tournament golf just from people that play a very different style of golf than me. So if I was to ask you just what what have you learned and from who, from anyone you've played with or crossed paths with out on tour that has had a real tangible impact on you? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, my rookie year, I learned a lot from Lee Jansen. Um, he was like a great great influence for me i played several practice rounds with him i played tournament golf with him we worked out together several times um i just saw him around a lot and so lee and charles howell i think i looked up to a lot and i i just watched like kind of how they went about their like daily life because my rookie year i had no idea what i was doing straight out of college and i was trying to figure out like how am i supposed to practice how often do i practice when am i playing tournament rounds so um, they were great guides for me in that realm. Um, since then, um, I learned a lot from my buddy Maverick. I mean, Maverick McNeely, he's my roommate in, in Vegas. And I mean, we talk all the time. And I think just from especially like a putting perspective, I could watch that kid putt all day long. And he is, I mean, one of the best putters out here. And so I'm constantly watching like how he practices his putting, what he's working on, how often he's working on it. So, I mean, especially like with quarantine, I mean, we just spent three months on top of each other. So like I've spent a ton of time just kind of picking his brain and figuring out what he does and um, trying to, 
trying to em- emulate a lot of that in my own game. Gosh, I don't. I feel like I sh- one. I should have known that, and two, I should have. That's who I should have tra- reached out to to get the stories about. That that would be the source <laughs> of it. I would imagine. Nah, that's not. That's not where we need to go. <laughs> what, uh, what do your games look like in Vegas? Then I mean, are you? I imagine you guys play a lot of golf together. But who who do you play with there? And, uh, and what's that golf scene look like? Yeah, so that was. Um, I moved down there in December, and it was a great move for me because there's so many professional golfers to play with uh, constantly. So I actually probably play the most with my buddy Justin Sa. Uh, he just graduated from SC about a year ago. Uh, he's a great player. He was number one amateur in the world. Uh, we grew up at the same course in San Jose together. So uh, we both moved down here to Vegas, and we play and practice together almost every day. And so we just try to find other guys to take on. Um, we play with Mav a decent amount. Buddy Eddie Olson moved down there. There's Shintaro Bond, John Oda. Um, there's just there's a lot of guys uh, down there at Summerlin that we get games with. And I mean, I think that was the biggest thing coming out of quarantine. I felt, you know, when courses reopened in May, I kind of had the whole month of May to just play competitively against guys every single day. So when the Corn Ferry season started and the PGA Tour season started, I felt really ready to go because, I mean, we were playing for money every day and there was always something, you know, pretty pressing on the line. And, um, you know, I felt very competitively sharp just from being in that environment. What kind of money are we talking? Oh, I mean, we don't have to get into specifics. Never. I mean, I... No one will ever get into the specifics. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> And yeah, it's never I mean, like almost anyone I've ever played with or talked to. It's not a lot of money like compared to what you play for every week. No, it's just we're the de- pros no, hate not. losing money worse than any any amateur does. I would say. Oh, absolutely, and I, I refuse to get a Venmo account because I, I want cash. <laughs> like if I win, I want you to physically take something out of your wallet and give it to me. <laughs> and if I lose, you know, I got to do the same thing, and that's uh, probably even more embarrassing. So it's it's a big incentive for me to make sure that uh, I'm sharp. And and yeah, I'd say the financial aspect is probably not even as strong as just the embarrassment of winning or losing. Yeah, there was, uh, I wasn't even here for this, but some of our guys were playing with a, with a pro at Atlantic beach here a couple of years ago. I remember and the last hole ended up with some big time carryovers and, and I think somebody went lone wolf and it was 300 bucks on the line for the lone wolf who was a pro at the time. And he walked off the green afterward and he's just like, Whoa, I needed that. Like I needed to feel that that under the gun pressure for you know not nearly the kind of money you play with week to week, but you that's the only real way to simulate that for him. So I was just surprised by this. Like, really, you got you got a little shook up over three hundred bucks, but the idea of having to pay it out is way worse than the actual impact on your bank account. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, and I mean the money's real, but yeah, when you yeah. got to open up your wallet and then you got to go home and be like, man. I gave him my money today. Like, what am I doing? You know, that whole situation. It's just, it's very motivating. (laughs) And what's also funny is that pros will have absolutely no problem collecting money off amateurs that are potentially infinitely more broke than they are. They will take that money with a smile and go straight to the vehicle. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Because a lot of times we got to go up against a bunch of baggers, you know, a bunch of guys that we're giving way too many shots. It's true. We've gotten handled a few times too. To be clear, I would have it no other way. I would insist on paying, but it's, it's uh, it's funny. I'll play with Jim Furyk from time to time and you know, he wins the money almost free, very frequently. And he's the third highest earner in the PGA Tour history. And he says no words. He just grabbed both, <laughs> grab the 20s and good play. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Like, listen, I would pay for, yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, I, I would definitely I would pay the money gladly to get that experience anyways. But it's, it's always funny to me. But 
we, we kind of glanced over this, or I forget if you mentioned this, but you were at the time, and I don't know if it's still the case, but you the youngest qualifier for the USAM ever at age 14. I was, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, that was, that was awesome. I mean, that was kind of part of the reason my dad kind of pushed me towards amateur golf after that point, um, to try to play with guys that were bigger, better, stronger, smarter. Um, but yeah, in, in 2002, I was 14 years old and I went through a 36 hole qualifier. Ironically, I had just lost in the qualifier and a playoff for the U S junior amateur three weeks before. And then uh, I played the U.S. Amateur Qualifier and got myself in a playoff and was able to somehow hit a wedge into a par five, birdie the playoff, and and make it to Oakland Hills for the U.S. Am. And it was uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, I was 14. I had no idea what I was doing or what it meant, but it was really really cool. Yeah, I was the youngest ever. Well, this is a question that I I never know how to word, I guess. But what I'm what I'm trying to get at, and I know there's there's been a lot of ups and downs from injuries in your career. But I always want to know from guys that have kind of lived in that bubble between, you know, bouncing back between the Corn Ferry and PGA Tour as to what, how you view what separates you from someone. And I, the example I always go to is Kevin Kisner, who is perennially on, you know, has his card very safely, does, does very well, doesn't bomb it, but just has a very, I don't want to say normal game, but a, a more relatable game to a lot of people. In your mind, what is what's the difference between you and Kevin Kisner? What do you have to do to get to his level of consistency? Well, yeah, it's honestly it's interesting you bring up Kevin Kisner because Kiz actually had a period of time that he bounced back and forth from the PGA Tour to the Corn Ferry Tour back. I think he went back to the Corn Ferry twice very early in his career out of college. And uh, he had a tough time where he almost thought about giving up the game, I read one, one time. So Kiz has gotten to a point in his career where he's figured out what it takes to succeed for himself to succeed on the PGA Tour. Uh, I really think the difference between me and him is, is simply experience. I've actually played against him quite a bit growing up. We faced each other. Uh, in the USAM in 2004 when he was in college I was 16 and he beat me on the first playoff hole and um, I mean I've I've played quite a bit against him and uh, he's a great player he's you know perennially keeps his card now and he's he's in a great place in his career but he went through those growing pains as well Um, I think for myself my career kind of got put on hold for about five years and so my learning curve got a little messed up in there. And I think that having gone through the Corn Ferry Tour now and gotten my card back, uh, I've learned a lot about what I need to do uh, well to succeed week in and week out. And uh, that's where a lot of my conversations about putting with Mav have come up because that's one of the areas of my game that I can get more consistent at and, and stronger at. Um, from a ball striking perspective, I think I'm in a pretty good place. Uh, my wedge game has gotten much more consistent in the last year and a half. And I think from a mental perspective, I, th- I think there's something to be said for getting comfortable out here and, and, and feeling like you can compete with these guys even when your game is not sharp. My rookie year when I played on the PGA Tour, I thought every aspect of my game had to be firing perfectly for me to have a chance to succeed. And I've had several events this year that I've had pretty good finishes and looked back on how I played and been like, man, I really wasn't that sharp this week. Um, But I'm starting to figure out kind of how to piece 
tournaments together again. And I think that's where Kiz has gotten to. I mean, he's a great ball striker, and I, I certainly am not taking anything away from what he does. He's a great golfer. But I think he is so consistent at where he's at now because he's gotten through those growing pains and he's gotten to a point where he knows exactly what it takes for him to play well. And he does that. And he kids doesn't worry about anything else. Like <laughs> kids is just, see, he's just playing golf and doing what he does. And that's, that's it. Yeah. I think that's kind of why I, why I end up defaulting to Kisner when I'm thinking about that is, you know, it's, it didn't come easy for him, you know, right off the bat and has figured out a way to, for it to be, you know, so consistent in a, in a era of just bombing guys are just absolutely murdering the ball. But have you sensed over the last decade since you turned pro, have you sensed a much of a shift in in professional golf, either in, you know, the, the kind of profile of the, the prototype uh, PGA Tour player or the volume of pros? How have you seen the game change over the last 10 years? Well, I, I think you've definitely seen the trend of guys getting bigger, stronger, faster. That has definitely happened. Um, My rookie year, I think Bubba was on tour, and he hit it crazy far, but there weren't quite as many guys as there are now that have the type of speed that you see now on tour. And then you combat that with like guys who are just much more polished. I think guys being able to use track mans every week, working on their distance control, and with the increased awareness and attention on putting, I think guys' games are just getting much more solid and much more bulletproof. Um, and so I think that means the fields on the PGA Tour are just getting much deeper. And I think, you know, you saw a big change in that when Tiger came out. He kind of pushed guys to move forward and get better. And I think that trend has just continued to increase as technology and, and research into the game of golf has improved teaching has improved um fields are just getting deeper and deeper because guys now have speed and they know how to control their yardages and they're really solid on the putting green so there just aren't a lot of holes in guys game now mm-hmm. I mean, you're playing uh at the uh, workday charity open classic i'm not even sure what it's called this week but it's just uh how many starts you anticipate the rest of the year and uh, do you have any experience around muirfield village so no this is my first time in muirfield i am unbelievably excited i've dreamed about this place for years so tomorrow's gonna be my first time to see the course Uh, i can't wait and uh yeah the rest of the year i think i will hopefully have four more starts including this year Uh, i'll hopefully be at minnesota barracuda and then the wyndham championship to end the end the regular season and then the playoffs after well we will uh, let you out on that i know you got lots a lot of prep to do for the rest of this week and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today uh talking through some some tougher issues and issues about your career and uh really appreciate the the perspective on things and i think listeners have one more guy to root for every week so joseph really appreciate the time and uh best of luck with the remainder of the season yeah thank you very much for having me Sally. i really appreciate it yep cheers be the right club be the right club today Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different.